December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Society of America. This is episode 42 of the show, where we now know the meaning of life. I am Bob Banner. And I'm Peter Palmer. <laughs> that makes me laugh. <laughs> and this week, uh, not a whole lot of preamble, because, you know, we, we had the big comeback show two weeks ago, and uh, just itching to get into the, the book, well, itching being kind of a subjective term. At this yeah, because it gave me a rash. <laughs> uh, for those of you who have already listened to the Back to the Bins from this week, or from last week, this is the same early morning recording session, and by early, I mean it's 11 o'clock in the morning, which really shouldn't be considered early. You know, that's the funny thing, is now our, our Back to the Bins, you know, we, we made that, you know, we, we let that cat out of the bag, but now they're off. It's like the back to the bins we just recorded went last week before number forty-one. So we're, we're one off on them. It's, it's going to be kind of funny. We'll have to throw in a filler or something to get perfectly caught well, up. You know, we got Luke's episode that I keep forgetting to edit together and put out there. So maybe we'll put that one out there. <laughs> but uh, not a whole lot of, you know, JSA news or, or anything like that. I don't think either of us have purchased anything recently that, uh, that work within that, that, uh, that time, that constraint. Uh, do you got anything, Scott? No, I got nothing, man. I'm, I'm, I'm a sad human being. Well, yeah, but do you have anything? <laughs> bastard oh like, uh, like, like you wouldn't have taken that oh i would have yes it. i was about to say you would have jumped on that and had at it like you were a prison inmate uh, <laughs> so i no. guess what no I'm, I'm 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 good to go so i guess uh i guess the the, the 1940s era music will come to an end prematurely 
Oh god, there's so many things to say to that. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to jump right in to All-Star Squadron number 12. We've gotten through the first year of All-Star Squadron, Scott. Yay! Uh, cover price of 60 cents. Cover date of August 1982. Uh, the story actually has several titles within it, but the main one is Doomsday Begins at Dawn. Written by Roy Thomas, uh, Adrian Gonzalez and Jerry Ordway artists, Carl Gafford colorist, John Costanza letterer, Len Wein editor. I almost said letterer again there. So we open on Hawkman, Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, uh, Firebrand, and Shining Knight all heading off from where we had left them in the previous issue. And Johnny Quick is all like to Hawkman, dude, what's up? Hawkman is 16 kinds of mysterious and finally reveals that one of the men he saw in the photograph with Professor Napier, the man who had died in the previous issue, had had died himself two years before. And then we get a flashback as Hawkman relates his origin. Carter Hall was just your average rich archaeologist and collector of ancient weapons when one night a sacrificial knife in his collection starts glowing and he has a weird dream of being in ancient Egypt where he was warrior Prince Khufu. Khufu is attacked and soon he and his beloved Chiera are murdered by the villainous Hathset. Carter comes to and goes for a walk when people start running like idiots out of the subway tunnels because the rails of the subway tracks are glowing blue and the electricity is killing people. Carter runs into a woman that looks like Shiera, and after they help the people they can out of the subway tunnel, Shiera reveals that she had the same funky dream. Carter gets Shiera back home to rest and he then designs the Hawkman outfit, complete with the nth metal he recently discovered that can do anything from cure impotence to uh, serve as a nice, you know, spread on your bagel in the morning. <laughs> and he goes, I'm sorry, it does everything. <laughs> it does. It really does. And he goes after a man named Haster, who is responsible for the subway problem. Haster turns out to be the reincarnated Hathset. Haster, Hathset, you get it? Uh even though Khufu doesn't have anything to do with Carter, but Shiera is named He says Shiera. that when he sneezes, though. <laughs> but uh, Haster has also kidnapped Shiera. Hawkman rescues her, and in the battle, Haster is killed. Back in the present, Hawkman explains that even though the picture they saw was taken before Haster was killed, the evidence is clear, at least to him, that Haster is behind the whole alien invasion thing. That's a real giant leap in logic there, Hawkman. <laughs> The All-Stars arrive at the military base where FDR informs them that he and Prime Minister Winston Churchill have decided to turn down the Axis offer because, well, the Axis want the Allies to acknowledge their right to be douchebags. This leads us into Chapter 2, The Malice Towards All. Hot Girl and the Atom are face-to-face -face with Haster, who is quite not dead, and apparently all roided up power-wise thanks to the scientist trust up to the funky machines behind him. The Atom attacks, but is defeated quickly and used, and used as a weapon hurled against Shiera, who is busy trying to free Commander Steel. Once they are knocked down, Haster tells his story, which begins in 1929 when he received a caller in the form of Elwood Napier. 
Napier has developed a formula that allows him to predict the future, and he spills out everything that is going to happen from the stock market crash to World War II. Haster throws him out, but soon discovers that Napier was absolutely right. But he really doesn't care, because he just wants to rule the world on his own. But after his run-in with Hawkman, he tracked down Napier, because it's like, well, I almost died, let's see if somebody else has a better idea. Turns out Napier has been quite busy building a machine that will fuse the intellects of the scientists he has gathered around him into a vast collective unconsciousness to fake a bigger threat so that the world will come together, drink a Coke, and live in harmony. Wait a minute, I just realized something. This is the plot of Watchmen. I know, I was... That's one of my notes, actually. It's like, holy crap, this is the plot to Watchmen. (laughs) (laughs) But this has such a better ending. Haster sabotages the machine before they enter it, and that catches him up to the present. The giant eye flies over the military base and begins Haster's attack. As Shining Knight watches, itching to get into the battle, but he has sworn to protect the Prime Minister. This leads us into Chapter 3, Revenge Across the Eons. Using a hot air balloon, Hawkman, Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick, and Firebrand land on top of the eye and bust into it, where they are immediately confronted by Haster, who informs them that there was no Ocknet, only Zool. Haster, I guess. As the attack picks up deadly speed, Hawkman uses the knife from his origin to form a psychic bond between he and Haster, and the two start duking it out on the astral plane. The battle causes the ship to stop firing, and after Shira lends her psychic support, Haster is pretty much toast. One problem. The flying eye is now crashing towards the ground, not only that, towards the building that has the president and the prime minister. Liberty Bell begs Robot Man to come to, essentially, and pull the other mines trapped in the machine to stop the ship which they do. In the end, the All-Star Squadron is victorious, and FDR has some words of wisdom regarding mankind being free to make its own destiny. Uh, Historical notes for this issue, as I don't have the book opened and I'm vying for time to get to the page that covers (laughs) All-Star Squadron number 12, and it's taking just a little bit longer than I thought it was. Okay, here we are. Vamp, monkey boy, vamp! I was pretty good on it. Uh... Note number one, on his own volition, Jerry Ordway penciled and inked a proposed cover for this issue showing the All-Stars attacking Ocknet on the White House lawn, but editor Len Wein had opted for another cover by Kubert. Ordway's cover was printed as a pinup in issue number 65, and there is a copy of it in this book on page 220, which is taking me faster to get to than to this page, and I'm <laughs> vamping a little more time, and oh my god, it's such a better cover. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah, I I really I really don't like this one, but honestly, I, I consider this one of the weakest in the entire series. It's really not an attractive cover. Several pages into number 12 retell events from the first Hawkman tale in Flash Comics number 1, January 1940. Although in his first few stories, Hawkman's helmet sat high on his head and didn't cover his face, it's shown used as a mask in the issue's flashback, in which Hawkman's wings are their original color, light blue. Roy Thomas took the basic idea for this story arc from a radio drama he heard in the late 1940s or early 50s in which an apparent 
invasion from outer space aliens is actually just the brainstorm of some idealistic scientists who wish to force the oft-quarrelsome nature of the nations of the Earth to band together. Anybody out there know what radio program that might have been? Um, no. Roy Thomas has Dr. Haster taking control of those scientists and warping their plans to suit his own ambitions. The Flying Eye was inspired by the Great Eye of Horus, which flew around devastating the world in ancient Egyptian myth. R.T. used that theme in more authentic form in the second comic book story he ever wrote, Carlton's Blue Beetle No. 54, and would later do a sequel to that story in Infinity Incorporated No. 44. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I don't remember that. Um, Dr... <laughs> This is actually one of my notes. Dr. Anton Haster, like most pre-World War II pundits, was certain the next war would be fought with dirigibles and poison gas. But by that time, dirigibles were largely obsolete as weapons of war, and poison gas was considered such an undependable agent that it is little used. In Flash Comics number one, the ancient Egyptian hawk god is called Anubis, but there, writer Gardner Fox aired. The hawk-headed god of that place and time was Horus. Anubis, often an evildoer, bore the head of a jackal. Both these images uh, that are in the book are from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And that is it for the uh, notes from the All-Star Companion, written by Roy Thomas. Excellent job, sir. Excellent job. Ah, thank you very much. You know, I recently had a, an opportunity to buy volume three of that on the cheap, and I'm kind of wondering if I should have. I'm not sure what all is covered in the Infinity third volume. Incorporated, I believe. Ah, uh, if I if I have a second opportunity to snap that up on the cheap, I'm going to. Because I really enjoyed the first volume. I'd like to get them all eventually, but they're kind of pricey, and I'm spoiled because I got the first one. I I think I paid like two bucks for it or something yeah. like that. So yeah, I I'm paid really full spoiled. Price. Yeah, when it Look, first came out, because they're I was expensive. So yeah. yeah, but you know, if you go to places like In Stock Trades, they're like sixteen bucks, which really isn't bad uh, overall. And if you order some other stuff and get over fifty dollars worth of ordering, it's uh, free shipping. So I'm cheap and I'm poor. Well, so am I. But there you go. <laughs> what do you got for this issue? Oh my God, where to start? <laughs> um. <laughs> That doesn't bode well. Yeah, it doesn't bode well at all. Okay, so there's a comment here. Damn, I wish I'd made a, a page note of this. Why do I suck so bad on this sort of thing sometimes? Oh, here it is. Page four, next to last panel. Hawkman, on his first attempt at flying, is plumbing out of the sky, and he suddenly uh, figures out how to work his uh, nth metal um, wings, and he says, amazing, the slightest motion of my shoulders, and I've stopped dead. So let me get this straight. Hawkman, like, wiggles his shoulders to flap his wings. That must look completely ridiculous. <laughs> I was just doing it. Yeah. While I was sitting here, I was like, God, that's kind of Riri. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see that, because he probably looks like he's doing the funky chicken. You know what I mean? Not the funky chicken. That would be absolutely hysterical to see, though. I'd like to see somebody animate that, because I bet you it's a hoot. Um, on the uh, second-to-last panel, on page five, Haster attempts to uh, electrify or electrocute Hawkman. And he says, 
Your electrical arc won't hurt me, madman. Both my quarterstaff and my ninth metal are non-conductors. And I'm thinking, yeah, except for when they're not. Because I'm pretty damn sure that he's been (laughs) juiced before in some story that I've read because he has ninth metal, which is a conductor. So I'm just saying. Uh, Let's see. But don't you know, nth metal cures herpes. (laughs) <laughs> There's not a whole lot of things it don't do. It doesn't save falling airplanes. I was I was glad to learn that last issue. Um, all right, so pay, let me get this straight because honestly, I really did mean to dig out. I've got one of those. What is it? First issue collector specials or whatever the hell it was called. One of those giant sized things that has Flash Comics number one in it. So I'm pretty sure this story is in there. You know the the Hawkman origin. I meant to dig it out and reread it just for reference, and I'm lazy and I just never made it to it. So I realize that this is a recap, so maybe we're missing details of the story, but the way it reads makes it look like, okay, he finds Haster, who he realizes is Hathset right off the bat, the guy that murdered him in a previous life. He smashes up his equipment and everything, and we see on the final panel of page five, Haster going, you son of a bitch! And then on page six, so it's basically a fast forward, and it's it shows where Hathset is. Uh, he's captured. He's figured out that Sierra must have been reincarnated too, and he's captured her, and he's got her on a sacrificial altar, and he's about to kill her when Hawkman comes breaking in and rescues her. And I'm thinking, what 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 happened in between these two? Why is Haster still sucking air? You know how did how did Hawkman not kill this guy or take him to jail or something and allow him to capture his friggin' girlfriend? How did that all come about? I've, I'm dying to know the details of that. Because well, it's it's interesting that you ask that because I'm looking at the origin right now. Okay. Um, in the in the original Flash comics number one, the Egyptian scene is spread out over like two or three pages. It looks a lot like if Flash Gordon was suddenly dressed in, like, Egyptian outfits, because he's right. completely white. Uh, he bumps into Shiera, just like here, after the the people come out. The rails! They're turning blue! The train's on fire! And he leaves Shiera, you know, where he did. That's all pretty much the same. But at one point in the story... Uh, she wakes up and goes, Anubis calls the ancient blood. I come, hawk god. And she just basically kind of shows up, and it's basically Haster has drawn her there hypnotically. Right. And they fight, just like in this, and he gets the arrow in the chest, and he had never met Haster before Haster kidnapped her. So, basically, in his very first meeting with Haster, Haster apparently dies. So this is really a a pretty faithful retelling of that issue, just with a lot better art. Right, but I'm still at a loss as what what happens in the gutters between that segment on page 5 where Hawkman and Haster are fighting... And then when Haster has Shira and he's gonna he's gonna murder her, why didn't Hawk? I mean, if I ran across a guy that I finally figured out murdered me in a previous life, 
which I still think one of Hawkman's friends should think that maybe he's off his nut for thinking that, you know? But anyway, you know, I think I'd probably want to take the guy out, you know, or at the very least, you know, cuff him and take him to the cops. So how is it that, that Haster is allowed to capture... Be- it looks like in the original... Let me look at this one more time. Because it gives the illusion, although it doesn't show it, just the, the panel of, of Haster shaking his fist and cursing Khufu gives the impression that Hawkman simply busted up his machinery and flew off. I mean, that... That's, that's not quite what happens in the okay. original story. Um, no, it, it does. He, he runs away, and the only... Re- and Hawkman tracks him down, so it's all within the same night. It's not like, you know, he's shaking his fist like, I'll get you, you know, I would have gotten away for, with it if it wasn't for you and your pesky ninth metal. But, and somehow in between there, he is able to hypnotically draw Shiera to them. So it's so, a it's a last shout on the retreat then, is that? Yeah, and then ah, it, it okay. goes to another place. So I it's gotcha. all within the same evening. It's not like it's like the next day or anything like that. So <laughs> I, I see what you mean, though. But but uh, yeah, this this looks a lot better than the original. I got. That's you. not me busting on Golden Age art. It's just me going. This looks a lot better than the original. <laughs> well, I didn't make a note of it, but now that you bring it up, the arrow in the chest thing, first panel of page seven. I mean, come on, that's right in the heart. And look at the length of the. Um, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Look at the length of that shaft. <laughs> On the next to last panel of page six, Hawkman is holding that crossbow, and that that bolt is enormous. You know, I mean, it's it's huge. Well, it managed to miss his heart. Oh come on! I don't know. Come on! He's the reincarnated hat set. I mean. Uh, There's a lot here uh, to buy into in the first. Yeah, time. exactly. It's a little much. Yeah. All right. Continuing. Um, not that it doesn't look ridiculous through all of the sequences it's shown, but on page six, panel four, Hawkman's first helmet looks particularly ridiculous in that in that panel. <laughs> Mostly because that hawk face on his head looks like it's going like, yeah, like it's leering at Shiera. It's really funny. <laughs> well, maybe it is. It could be. That thing was possessed by some Egyptian demon from I don't know, I'm just making this up as I go along but it sounds really plausible considering all the other stuff that happens to Hawkman so (laughs) I've seen weirder Now you already did the historical notes so I guess if this were real it would have been in the historical notes but uh uh, Shining Knight at the end of uh, Hawkman's recap says, uh, and even I have heard of the mysterious subway fire of 1939. So I guess that wasn't a real event that somehow Thomas tied in or something. Uh, I don't think so. Okay, I meant to look that up, and again, I just, I just, I just didn't. Then again, there were probably several subway fires over the course of the <laughs> history of the New York subway system. So <laughs> could be. Uh, let's see here. Okay. All right. Johnny Quick delivers a speech at the beginning of page eight that pretty much sums up why I don't really care for this story. And he says, um, 
You know, Bell, I still can't believe it. Our army gearing up to fight off a man from Mars in the middle of a world war that ought to be enough to keep any self-respecting planet busy. Yeah, exactly. exactly. This story just kind of, you know, is there not enough going on already? That That's exactly why I'm not real crazy about this one. Um, a hot air balloon? Really? <laughs> I mean, we've seen this flying eye ship blasting tanks and melting tanks and, you know, depowering aircraft and just wreaking all kinds of havoc. So you're going to put your, all your guys into a hot air balloon? Well, because it go... can't affect it. Uh, but they don't know. I mean, what's to keep the eye from just turning on them and blasting them out of the sky? And they've got no way. I mean, at least in an aircraft, you would think that maybe, you know, there's a chance you could get the hell out of the way. If you're in a hot air balloon and you suddenly see that giant pupil aim at you, you know you're screwed. I mean, what are you going to do, jump out? Yes. You know? <laughs> it's exactly what you should do. <laughs> Somebody's going to catch you. Um, A comic book cliche that I have come to absolutely detest over the years is the classic I could destroy you with one thought right now, but you know, I won't do that. I That drives me nuts. And Haster does it several times. In the, he even says it. Oh, you know, I could destroy you, but let me regale you with my life story. And it's like, just shoot me, alright? You know? Well, that's because Haster is the original Bond villain. So <laughs> this is true. Let me tell you exactly why I'm going to destroy you. Peanuts, hey. Mr. Bond. <laughs> Page twenty-three. That's the slowest plummet I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> we are seeing. We are shown on the first panel of page twenty-three that it says. The flying eye begins to plummet. That's the author's own words. And it's we like see right over the building. Yeah, it's mere inches away from crushing the building where uh, where FDR and Churchill are hanging out, right? Yeah. Everybody's in a panic. You know, the soldiers are running, look out, and oh my god, it's gonna kill the president. And we still have let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <sighs> seven panels. With a whole hell of a lot of exposition where Liberty Bell, you know, goes and, gee, I think I know what to do. And she talks to the robot man and thank God he wakes up in time and knows exactly what to do to say. And it's like, OK, come, you know, uh, that's another comic book cliche that drives me nuts because wasn't there a, an, uh, like an old timey Captain America? Uh, yeah, I think it was Captain America story where he like fell off a building. But then he talks for like three pages before he hits the ground or something. It was completely ridiculous, and that's what this reminds me of. I almost have this image in my head of like a shot of like the people under it screaming, and you hear like air raid sirens, and Aah! and then we cut back to the ship going. I guess if it was a television show, somewhere in there would be the commercial break. You know, you'd come back from it. And, uh, you know, the ship would be like, you know, 100 feet higher than it was before, that sort of thing. It just uh, drives me crazy. The uh, Churchill speech at the very end of this thing, completely ridiculous. It's so cheesy. And can you imagine actually standing there listening to the guy saying this? You'd be like, 
Wow, what is he talking about? You know, <laughs> it would just be so uncomfortable. I've really got to pee. <laughs> but it's um, FDR, so I have to listen yeah, to it. No, you don't want to be disrespectful, but yeah. He just goes on and on about, you it's know, like the when threat. your grandfather's telling you a story that you're really not interested in. <laughs> it totally is, too. Because he just goes on and on about the threat we face today and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, yeah, all right. We get it, man. We were there. We lived it. <laughs> Shut up. I was in the ship. <laughs> I know what happened. You didn't do jack shit, you crippled old bastard. I went in there and faced the bad guy. I know what the story was. Shut up. <laughs> so, uh, my, my note about the ship on the very last panel of the book is uh, I just wrote down, suddenly circular. Because uh, it hasn't been an elliptoid the entire issue, but now all of a sudden it's a giant frisbee. Well, frisbees are awesome. Well, they are awesome. I got nothing. I really don't. It'd be great, though, to take a frisbee and paint it to look like the eye of Akne. <laughs> that would be cool. I'd like Hang a toy up. of this, actually. That'd be neat. <laughs> the $64,000 question in my mind is, what happened to the eye? Like after this? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, why didn't FDR or Churchill or somebody load the thing up with more, you know, eggheads and go just, you know, wipe Hitler off the face of the earth or something? Or better yet, you know, I would love to see this somehow tied into present day with uh, with the Omax and Brother I and all that shit. You know, yeah, that but somehow... it's current day DC, so someone's going to end up getting raped in the middle of it, so I really don't want to read that. <laughs> Alright, overall, my, my grade on this one, you know, it's, it's not that it was bad. It's not that it was a bad idea. It's just, it's kind of dull. You know, it just didn't come off. It's a, it's, it's a three-part story that ultimately probably could have been told in two issues. And I don't want to come off as like we're insulting Roy Thomas. Exactly, we're yeah. Not. yeah. But, you know, any artistic endeavor, and we were discussing this in Back to the Bins recently, any artistic endeavor which lasts a long period of time, you're going to have your clunkers. Cause oh, not yeah. Because everything can be completely awesome. I'm sure if I read through James Robinson's Starman, it wouldn't be like the greatest thing since sliced bread from beginning to end. Uh, what saves this issue for me is the artwork. Yeah, it does. The artwork in this really thing is fantastic, and I don't know if Ordway had to just redraw certain pages, because from what I understand, that, had to, that happened a few times, where he was just sent a few pages like, this doesn't work, just redo the whole thing. Uh, because his inks are really heavy yeah. in, in this issue. I, I think mainly the problem I have with this story is that it is focused on a character that I really don't care all that much about. Hawkman? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, me and, too. And, and it's great. The one thing I do like about this issue, well, there's a couple things, but the, the main thing I like is that Roy Thomas had a tendency, especially around the era we're coming into is that if he was late on a book and he did this in the invaders too if he was late or if it wasn't just wasn't going along he would throw in a reprint so you would have modern day artwork and then bam golden age story did that infinity incorporated a few times mm -hmm. and it always bugged me when that happened because it's like man i don't if i wanted to read the golden age story i would go track down the golden age story i'm here to read about hawkman so the fact that they redid his origin with quote-unquote modern artwork I think kind of saved that segment because if they would have just reprinted 
the original, it would have been like, oh god, I gotta read through this? Yeah. Are you kidding me? It really? <laughs> no, thank you. I think, uh, I think it's kind of amazing, though, that when you look at Hawkman's origin, god, there's a lot of stuff that just comes together that you take for granted later. I mean, it's just like, you know, he meets Shiera and suddenly, and they're destined to be together. And I, I guess in the 40s, that flew. No pun intended. God, I can't believe I just said that. Well, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in their conversation in the cab where, you know, the the, the only part of it we're privy to is where she says, I've had the same dream. But, you know, I, I just imagine there being a moment of her looking at, at him and, like, fumbling for the doorknob and trying to get the hell out because this guy's a <laughs> lunatic, you know? I had a dream about you, and we were all ancient Egyptians, and it's like, yeah, okay, nice Why talking to you. always happened to me? <laughs> Why can't I meet a nice man? <laughs> um, but what was your final grade? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 you didn't. No, that that was that was pretty much it. Just that, uh, like you say, I, I don't want to come across either as as totally ripping on Roy because he really is one of my heroes, one of my absolute favorite comic book people. And on the, on the you know extreme off chance that he's actually listening to this, love you, man. We we really do appreciate you. And uh, yeah, everybody has their Spock's brain. And uh, you know, you remember this series much better than I do, Mike. Um, tell me that that we've past the the point here where we're, we're we're about to get into a really good era because okay. uh, not to spoil ahead so i'm going to speak in very broad strokes mm-hmm. uh we have a nice little downtime issue next time we got the annual coming up which i rather care for and then we're going to get into the jla jsa crossover right for this year and then it's the lead up to infinity incorporated because I can't remember. There's only one other story I can remember in the in the history of All Star Squadron. You know, my my poor remembrances of it. There's only one other story that comes to mind that uh, I really disliked, and that was that one with uh, the JSAers. It's it's a th- throwback to the Golden Age where they all wind up on different planets in our solar system. Oh, yeah. I really don't like that one. But beyond that. I don't remember not liking any other issues, so I'm hoping that, you know, like I say, we've pretty much gotten Spock's brain out of the way and everything else is pretty much gold from here. In the late teens, Ordway takes over the artwork completely. Mm-hmm. And we, and we get, like, a bunch of really great covers and stories, and they get a headquarters. Right. Which is another yeah, awesome I'm looking thing. forward to that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really... You know, it, 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 this series, if you look at the first year, which I guess we can kind of look back, you know, look look at the year in toto, you know, you have a really great three-issue kickoff. You have issue four, which I, I liked quite a bit, which established why they can't just go over and whoop on Hitler. And then you have the Commander Steel two-parter. Uh, well, the, the introduction to Commander Steel, and then like a two-parter dealing with that and then you have these three issues so it was really like yeah 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 uh, but then it picks right back up so it's right. not like a long plummet right it's like a wily e. coyote cartoon where you just see it falling and then a little poof at the bottom of you know with the white cloud coming up uh you know me on this issue there there's just not a whole lot to say i mean it, it, it's it's kind of an interesting plot but I think what 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 breaks it down for me is is that it you know it's Hawkman it's Haster who cares, 
Right. And and yeah, this this is this is Watchmen. This is Watchmen in its natural thing where people wouldn't team up to fight the alien invasion. They'd be like, well, you know, I'll join up with you, but you better do what I want you to do, you know, if you want me to stick around. It's just like, wow, way to be a douchebag. (laughs) (laughs) The planet is at peril, and you're still worried that there's Jews around. What is your problem? So, I mean, it, it wasn't awful, like, like I, I, you know, I want to throw the book across the room, but at the same time, I'm really glad we're past it, right? Because any story that I mean, the big fight at the end happens in the astral plane, basically. Yeah, never a fan of that. And and I'm like, you know what? We got Hawkman. He's got weapons of the past to fight the threats of the present. I want to see him whoop ass on somebody. You know? Yeah, I would have been much happier to see him just mace this guy side the head. You know, see <laughs> brain splatter and everything, and it's over. Because, you know, I never liked Hawkman until, um, God, who who did that series? Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns. Yeah, that series because basically. He, that's how he was. He was much more just thinking with his fists and his weapons than he was, you know, all this, you know, mystical crap. And uh, I liked that much better. He was Wolverine with wings in a lot of ways. And I, I kind of dug that. It was the first time I ever really dug Hawkman. The, uh, the all-star comments in this issue, the letters page, uh, they basically skip over the uh, letters for issues I believe they say 7 and 8 and they go into a bunch of letters where people are saying here's who I want on the team Mm -hmm. and one guy Eddie Stanton says on the cover of All-Star Squadron number 1 you had photographs of Crimson Avenger Vigilante, Sandman, Tarantula Captain Triumph, Green Arrow, Wildcat Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy what happened to all of them? (laughs) they're dead Got another guy asking for Captain Triumph, Kid Eternity, and Midnight. Uh, we got Dr. Fate mentions the original Tornado. Uh, you know, and Ravi, the man who wrote that letter, is like, you know, how about having her in your comic? Jay Elliott Jr. says, any chance of Steel becoming a semi-regular or an honorary member of the squadron? Uh, excuse me, I'm going through puberty again. Eric Nelson uh, asks for Mr. Terrific. Uh, Justin J. Major would like to see more mi- more heroes from minorities or non-Americans. Uh, Fred Traweek wants to see Bulletman, Robin, Wildcat, the Phantom Lady, and even maybe Lady Luck. And that is the only name I do not recognize. Yeah, I don't know that one either. Bulletman would have been cool, though. And uh, got a couple people, Kevin T. Brown and Anthony uh, Georges, asking for the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And Greg Brooks wants Captain Marvel, but also Bulletman, Mr. Scarlet, Spy Smasher, and once again, Wildcat, Mr. Terrific, and Sargon the Sorcerer. <laughs> and uh, Roy answers that, you know, the Fawcett heroes, including Captain Marvel, turn out to be not available at the present time. I wanted to ask you about that. I am so tired of, of hearing that. We heard that a lot during this era. What was the deal with that? Do you know? It was basically... The licensing deal they had with the people that owned Captain Marvel Mm -hmm. was instead of saying, you know, you pay, DC paying them like a lump sum, like we're going to pay you such and such a year to use these characters and use them in an unlimited capacity, they would prorate them. So you Uh, had to appear by, you had to pay by appearance. And that's, that's what I'm getting from what I've read. 
uh, is that, you know, at the time, the, the appearances were so limited because they had to pay probably a good chunk of change for every time he would appear in a book. See, I thought they just outright owned them after they bought them from, from Fawcett. No, that wouldn't come until, like, 82, 83. Somewhere around oh, okay. this... Somewhere right after this is where they get to use them more, which is why eventually in the 30s, uh, number-wise, issue-wise, you'll see Captain Marvel. Right, yeah. Uh, and you get to see the... I think I think you get to see the fight you always wanted to see in the Golden Age of the Earth 2 Superman and Captain Marvel going at it like rabbits. No, wait, wait, no, no, not rabbits. <laughs> That's the wrong thing to say. <laughs> that would be a completely different comic. Um, <laughs> like Mad um, Yeah, it had to be admitted to a special room in the back of the comic store to get that issue. Uh, the Major Justice Society members will be back soon, and we promise you'll start seeing a lot more, even if on a rotating basis, of Green Lantern, the Spectre, and Dr. Fate. Uh, Steel, and, and this this is why you don't see them. Uh, that's been our intention from the start, but first we wanted to deal with the situation created in All-Star Comics number 11, in which eight JSAers, or nine if you count then honorary, honorary member Green Lantern, briefly joined the armed services. So continuity-wise, they're in the army now. The fact that we got Hawkman here was kind of a fluke. See, I think that makes this a stronger title, though, because honestly, yes. I liked it better when it focused on you know, these these extreme... I was going to say second stringers are not even really second stringers. They're no. they're really unknowns to a, to a large degree, at least to to modern audiences of that era. I mean, I didn't know who these guys were outside of that, and I think that's one of the strengths of the title. Is you know, I didn't want to see it be dominated by all these guys that you know we'd already seen in, in All Star Comics and all that sort of thing, or that you see in, in other adventures and other titles. I wanted to see. You know, guys that you would only see in this title, like Robot Man. You know, you're not going to see him anywhere else. So, no. give him the spotlight here. I, I love that. That's what I liked best about this. Title. That's a that's another storyline we're coming up on is uh, a big Robot Man mm-hmm. uh, two parter, uh, which is basically if you want to to give a comparison that doesn't really give away too much, it's like the episode of Next Generation where they had to. Measure of a Man? Yeah, Measure of a Man, which is a great episode. Love that episode. Yeah. Uh, Steel's already back and promoted to boot, and this year's All-Star Squadron Annual Number 1 on sale late this summer. Probably talking about that in about two weeks, uh, if our our timetable is right, because I think... We should probably do that before we go into the crossover. Yeah, that 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 was why I put when I was filing the books to in the order we wanted to cover them, I put it there. I think release wise it works out there, but I don't want to be in the middle of a crossover and then have to right have to be like, whoops, <laughs> got to talk about this annual. But that's going to have Wildcat and another DC hero we're saving as a surprise, and that story ties together the origin of three DC heroes in a really I think clever way. Number four, virtually all of the DC and quality heroes uh, mentioned above, plus many more, such as Dollman, will make an either cameo or extended appearance in future issues, but we've got to take it slow in order to develop the handful of currently active All-Stars, plus the JSA headliners who will be popping up. And finally, we hope we're not letting any cats out of the bag prematurely by saying that this summer we'll see a multi-part crossover between the Justice League, the 1980s Justice Societies, and the All-Stars. 
Awesome. It'll begin in JLA number 207, which is two months away. So, yeah, we'll have next month and then the annual and then JLA 207. So that works. Sweet. And and continue into All-Star Squadron number 14, and we'll run for several months in both mags. It works for me because then you can synopsize the annual. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be like... (laughs) Like do like the the novel length version of it. It was a cold, cold January day in nineteen forty two. Um, really sucky ads this time out. I miss the hostess ads so bad. <laughs> Everybody misses the hostess ads so bad because man, myth and magic. Uh, the is that a game or is that a mag oh it's a game. oh are you actually looking i wasn't even gonna bother because they're they're so crap in this issue well you know you got the you got the man myth and magic ones that actually has a special offer to dc to dc readers the only other even tangentially comic book related or interesting ad is that there's an ad for the sergeant rock action figures from remco yeah I which all have the exact same body sculpt yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, because eventually they would also do like the Warlord and the uh, and the uh, Arak and all those action figures as well. I remember seeing those on the rack at um, Woolworths when I was a kid, but I didn't. Kmart know. had them in my it. area. Really? Kmart carry yeah, and, and not only did they carry them, they carried them by the registers. <laughs> so it wasn't even in the action figure aisle. <laughs> Which to me says, wow. It's crap. <laughs> so bad we had to buy rack space. All right, so up next we're going to take a look at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, which you can find at www.dcindexes.com. And we are looking at issues cover dated. We are looking at cover dated, right? Yes. Cover dated August 1982. And uh, holy crap! I own most of what's on this page. That's totally <laughs> awesome. I, I love own a lot of this. Uh, not all of them, but uh, at least two out of each line I have. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, I'll okay. just on that first line I've got. Let's see. I've got the best of DC twenty seven. Love that cover where L- Luthor's blasting uh, Superman. It's the Superman versus uh, Luthor issue of Best of DC. I like that one. DC Comics presents Aqua, uh, Superman and Aquaman. And, uh, you know, this is something we had talked that. about doing, Mike, was those whatever happened to segments that were in DC Comics presents. I'd still like to find a place to do that sometime. We'll figure out something, maybe like yeah. a special episode where we kind of go through. Because they're, they're like eight pagers. They go really quick. And yeah. Some of them are complete crap. So, <laughs> But a lot of them, you know, focus on, on, you know, on JSA or so and Avenger and yeah. Adam and all. Yeah. That and some are good, some are just really freaking goofy. Fury of Firestorm number three. Got Love it. that cover. Yeah, and I've got that JLA issue too, but I'm not sure I've ever read it, but I do have it. Good George Perez cover on there. Yeah. I only have one off of the next line. I have Flash number 312, and I kind of wish I didn't because that era of the Flash was where that book started to deteriorate. 
I think I have that one too, just based on the cover. I'm pretty sure I, I've seen that. Co- yeah, I do have it because I've got all those Doctor Fate backups, so I do have that issue. Yeah, I, yeah, I know I have it because I have everything from 274 till 2006. Wow. So. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've, I have a pretty mammoth Flash collection, so. <laughs> I love that Gene Colon, uh, Gene Colon rather cover on uh, Batman three fifty. That's mm-hmm. awesome. great. Very good. How's that Jonah Hex issue? Is this another one you've totally? <sighs> I remember a couple instances where he wound up on a pirate ship, but I can't remember the specifics I feel of this. Bad for the pirates. Yeah, I, I love this though. He's about to be fed to the sharks. I like that. That's pretty cool. Now this Legion of Superheroes annual number one. Mm-hmm. Freaking awesome, man. It's great. This is uh, one of the earliest uh, Legion stories I read. And, uh, God, I loved it. It was really, really... I need to dig it out and read it again because I'm kind of vague on the uh, specifics here. But uh, it was their computer. I'm trying to remember what the name of that computer was. It was like... Computo? Computo, yeah. I think it was Computo now that you say that. Where it was actually a really silly Silver Age concept... But they brought it back in an awesome way where it, it inhabited the body of, I want to say this was like Invisible Kid's little brother or sister or something, something like that. that. Yeah. I'm, it, I'm struggling to remember the Who's Who entry that I read because yeah. I own this. I just haven't read it yet. Actually, on this entire line, the Legion Annual, New Teen Titans number 21, Night Force number 1. Saga of the Swamp Thing 4, Superman 374, and Brave and the Bold 189. The only one I'm missing there is Swamp Thing. I and think, I have read most of them. I'm not sure about the Brave and the Bold issue. I know I have all the other ones here, but I'm not sure about that Brave. That, it doesn't ring a bell. You know, the cover doesn't ring a bell, so I'm not sure. That cover used to be the, at the front of the box for the longest time huh. of my Batman books. So when I would, like, pull books or, or file books or put books back in, when I would get to that box, that was the first thing I always saw, so... That Swamp Thing issue, that's the one at the end that's dedicated to those kids that were murdered in, uh, what was it, Atlanta or whatever? Oh, yeah, the uh, child murders in Child Atlanta, murders, which, yeah. Uh, which, the, I don't know if it actually happened. It's kind of an urban legend, but do you remember Steve of Steve and Vicky? Yeah. If I am remembering correctly, from the story that I was told, and again, this could be completely wrong, that Steve and the Kimmer... Kim Peterson uh-huh. were DJs at, a, at an Atlanta station, and after doing a news report on the Atlanta child murders, played Another One Bites the Dust by Queen and were fired because of it. Wow. I don't know if that happened. I can't imagine Kimmer being that. Well, it was probably unintentional. Like, they didn't do it on purpose. Oh, I got you, yeah. But enough people raised a big stink. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty, uh, yeah, that's pretty uh, thoughtless. You know, even if you didn't mean it, that's, yeah, that's pretty horrible. Oh, damn it! (laughs) (laughs) But I could be completely wrong about that. Uh, I'm just going on what I was, stories that were told at Titans that my father never told me, trying to get a joke out of that and failing completely. (laughs) <laughs> Love this cover to uh, Green Lantern 155 with him charging up and that's saying a, that's so. That's a Dave Gibbons cover, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, I think so. No, it's a Joe Staten cover. Joe Staten? Is it Joe Staten? Yes, I, I it did, is. Yeah, I didn't. Excuse my clicks. 
No, that's cool. No, it's fine because you know you, you have to click on these to to enlarge them from the thumbnails, and I was too lazy to do that, and I should have because you know, now that you say that, yeah, it's obvious that it's Joe Staten, but when it's the little thumbnail, it looked like it could be either one of those guys. Part of the uh, Great Darkness Saga in uh, Legion of Superheroes 290. I also I have this issue of uh, House of Mystery, and uh, you know I'm no fan of Cubert, uh, but I actually do kind of like that Cubert cover on that one with uh, Bennett washed up on the beach there and the vampire girl in the background. I'm still surprised like the CW hasn't done a I Vampire series. It could happen. It I could mean, happen. I mean. Yeah, they did the Vampire Diaries, but if you make Bennett just a little bit younger, you can have it on the uh, White People channel, basically. Yeah, but I wouldn't want to see them... uh, Muddy it up? Yeah, I I don't want to see them Dawson Creek Eyes, I Vampire, you know what (laughs) I mean? Dawson Creek Eyes. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't... I don't care for that at all, you know? But, uh... God, this cover to, to Warlord 60 just makes me want to bang my head on the desk because a while back at, uh, you know, when I still lived in Carrollton, I'd go out to that flea market every so often. There was a dude out there that had um, a bunch of comics for sale. I mean, cheap. I want to say they were they were 50 cents at the most. And almost everything there was Warlord. It was probably a, a complete series or pretty damn close to it. I want to snap that up. Man, I should have snapped. I kept looking at him, but my problem was I didn't have my list with me that day. And, uh, you know, several months prior to that, I had bought a ton of Warlord from another guy who was at that flea market. So I didn't want to, you know, end up getting duplicates and all. So I passed up on it. And then when I went back to get it a couple weeks later, at least look at it because I had my list with me the second time and they were all gone. Somebody snapped them all up. So I was like, damn it. But every time I look at that, I think, you know, it's not my genre. But, man, is that some beautiful artwork by Mike Grell. I mean, just my, gorgeous. My brother-in-law, my my eldest, well, my only brother-in-law my uh, of my sister's, uh, uh, there's Rachel's brother too, but uh, who married my eldest sister was a huge Warlord fan. He was a huge uh, Conan fan as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and had, but uh, the only, really, the only comics he kept were the Warlords and the Conans. Uh, so every time I see Warlord, I think of Tim, who was also, by the way, a giant Star Trek fan. Just to <laughs> tell you, cool. I like him already. Uh, you'd probably get along. He's around your age. Because you old people only get along with each other. Um. You know, I told you I wasn't going to use the certain word on this podcast anymore, and I'm tempted to use it right now. <laughs> Come on. Of all the of all the, the ball-busting you do to me, like on Facebook, on a consistent basis. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> I plead insanity. <laughs> You'd win, too. <laughs> I think we both would. I think once you reach, like, the 6,000 mark with your comics, that's that's insanity. Because that's... that's The 6,000 mark? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, the other day I, uh, I passed... What was it? I've got it listed here somewhere. Where is it? I used to know. Um, yeah, 16,611. Yeah, usually uh, on New Year's Day, I'll get on the computer and, and look in my little um, 
database and count up how many issues I have and post it compared to last year and break it down by like Marvels and all that. I can't do that this year because the database disappeared and I'll be pretty much damned if I'm going to sit there <laughs> and hand count all of these issues. At this Your point. wife would probably be damned if you're going to sit there and do all that. <laughs> oh, she'd be supportive. She'd help me. But really? Yeah, she would. If I asked her, she would. Rachel is an enabler. Uh, we've talked about this before. I, na- yeah, I married right. the enabler. You married the disabled. Disabler, so. yes. Yes, I have been disabled. Um, somebody once asked me, I want to say it was Mike Petit. I'm not positive. But somebody once asked me to compile a list of what I thought were great pre-crisis Superman stories and being the lazy complete bastard that I am I just never got around to it but here's one for you the uh, story where Superman gets split into two physical beings with uh, basically each one has select powers of the whole Superman Uh, that story begins right here in action 534 and man did I love that story really good stuff I really enjoyed that did you ever read that one? Yes. Uh, Satanus and Cyrene. Yeah. That's I like a part that. of the Wolfman run. Yeah, I, I like that story as well, despite the fact that some of it... Was was that all drawn by... Swan did like one or two of those, but I know Staten came on to the yeah. table. That's, I think that's why I liked it was Staten. Because I really... I remember... I have vivid and fond memories of the cliffhanger in that one issue where there's one of the Supermen that winds up critically injured. And uh, this giant claw digger thing comes up out of the earth and and steals him from you know right off the operating table and Lois Lane is like trying to drag him from the jaws of this machine and she's crying and you know wake up Superman and that was powerful stuff when I was a kid you know it was a really good issue you know I, I look at this Detective Comics issue and it's one of those co- covers that, that has like. You don't see what's in front, you know, like the front of the character. We got two people looking at him going, holy crap, you know, what's wrong with you? And uh, <laughs> what, what I what I really want to do is have somebody Photoshop Robin saying, like, good God, Batman, what are you covered with? And Alfred <laughs> going, what is that smell? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it looks like, too. <laughs> Yeah, you know, as much as I was uh, glowing over the uh, the Batman issue by Colin, I, I don't really care for that cover by Colin. Yeah, Robin exactly. looks good, but you know, Alfred looks wacky, and Batman's head looks funny. Changeling is the subject of the Tales of the New Teen Titans number three. I like that issue. Yeah, got Superboy, the New Adventures of Superboy number thirty-two, and we're right around the time where this series kind of picks up a little bit. And stops being kind of goofy. But I gotta tell you, you know, it's like I can. I've been uh, launched on a project where I'm finally getting around to boarding the Superman books I have. You know, right now most of them are just bagged, and I, I was like, you know, we're, we're getting into a point where we might be moving these things around a little more, and I want them to be a little more secure. So I, I've been boarding them, and I've been looking through some of the action issues as I've been putting them in the board, uh, into the the new bag and board, and I and I realized something that I will take a Superboy story drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger and written by Carrie Bates because it has like that kind of like old timey feel. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's the past. I was looking through some of those action issues right before Burn took over, 
and my god, it's just like, wow, these Schaffenberger stories look like crap. <laughs> <laughs> they don't look even good. It's like it's like they weren't even trying there at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Because Superman itself had some really good issues from 400 to 423. Right. Like some interesting ones, like the one where he dealt with the uh, the nuclear arms race that you know didn't involve him throwing them into the sun but still it was a, like kind of a thought provoking issue and you had some other like kind of really good ones like right around the crisis where you dealt with the person that supergirl supposedly married but action looks like it was ass <laughs> isn't action i'm trying to remember which one of the ones was the one that just looked like they just ran out of ideas yeah. you know and and they were just coming up with stories like you know batman or superman thinks he's batman and you know, Superman's really a robot, and just all these really kind of wacky things, and and yeah, it it really does feel like that book was running out of steam just before the the burn reboot. It's it's actually kind of sad when you look back at that. You know, that last what year or two mm-hmm. uh, of the super titles. I just I noticed a weird parallel here is that Gil Kane drew the covers to both that New Adventures of Superboy 32 and World's Finest 282, uh-huh. and both of them feature like tiger-looking things. One, you know, <laughs> one's a tiger guy attacking Superboy. The other one is Batman being carried off by winged tigers. That's really bizarre. This is getting into the era where I really don't care for Gil Kane's artwork. <laughs> it's not as strong as it used to be, but I have a real uh, a, a soft spot for for Gil Kane Superman. Don't don't ask me why. I just do. I really like that it was his uh, version of the character that was largely uh, adapted for the uh, the animated series in '88. Will you guys be covering that on FCTC? By the way. You mean the thing that passed us by? Like oh, it did, didn't it? Yeah, you know, that's right. We we weren't covering extra things at that time, and I I don't think it was on DVD yet. I think yeah. it was just about to come out on DVD. Yeah, that's uh, true. So unfortunately, no. Uh, and I and I hope to goodness that we don't cover Lois and Clark like we've been covering the Superboy. I wasn't going to say that, but yeah, I, I'm kind of hoping that too. But you know, we might. It just it just ends up, you know, it, it, you know, it's not just my show, so I can't sit there and go, "Well, we're going to cover what I want to cover." Because uh, speaking of which, Scott, I've l- recently emailed you my list of demands for this show. So just oh, is that what I put in the trash today? <laughs> yes, exactly. I printed them out specifically to throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> It's lining the litter box as we speak. <laughs> I didn't know you had Oh, holy crap, now. dude. Next month is uh, is that DC Comics Presents Annual number one. We we really have to cover that. I, I mean it. I really want to cover that book because I love that story. Well, we can always do it on Back to the Bins. It's an idea. It's an idea. We, de- we definitely need to cover that, though. That's great. God, there's some great books next month. i got to stop looking or I'll yeah. start talking about the ones next month, too. Especially since we got a couple of emails to go through. We do have emails to go through. You want to um, go ahead and jump into that? Well, the first one we actually has an audio email from John Wilson that he sent us back in May uh, that we're just going to stick in right now where he gave us a review of the Monocle's first appearance because he had just happened to randomly read it. So he recorded it. If you want to hear John elsewhere, be sure to check out Amazing Spider-Man Classics. 
that he hosts with uh, Josh Bertoni and Donovan Morgan Grant, as well as Teenage Wasteland, an Ultimate Spider-Man podcast, hosted by John and Zach Henderson. So we're going to play that. Hey guys, Scott and Mike, this is John Wilson. I just wanted to send y'all a little audio email. We covered on Tales of the JSA recently uh, Justice League, Justice Society team-up story where they were up against all these bad guys and one of them was the Monocle. And I'd never heard of the Monocle because I don't know a whole lot about all the random DC characters. Um, But then later on I was reading my Golden Age Flash comics that I've been trying to work my way slowly through. And I got to all Flash quarterly, number one, and lo and behold, there was a story about the Monocle. It looks to me like it's his first appearance, although I've seen his first appearance listed as a much later Flash book from the Golden Age and other places, so I don't know what the story is there, but whatever. Anyways, I just thought, you know, maybe y'all haven't read it before, and I would do a little write-up on it and share it with you. So, here it is. Um, Also, because when I was reading this, I was supposed to be studying for my statistics final, but reading Flash comics was much more fun. So, here is the adventure of the Monocle and his Garden of Gems from All Flash Quarterly number 1. Cover date summer 1941, released May 25th, reprinted in Golden Age Flash Archives Volume 2. See, I can be all professional and stuff. Um, So, this is what was going on with the story. Um, We're backstage at a fashion show. And there are these two women, and they're mooning over these hats that are covered in jewels. And these hats are going to be modeled in the fashion show. And while they're ogling them, this mysterious hand drops a vial of gas that knocks out the women. So Joan Williams, who is Jay Garrick's girlfriend, she's a costume designer for the show. And when she comes into the room, she sees the women are unconscious, and the hats have been stolen. Oh my god! She rushes out to the lobby where Jay Garrick is smoking a cigarette, because it's okay to do that in the comics in the 40s, and evidently smoky lungs don't interfere with the speed force. So she tells him about the crime, and he's gobsmacked that anyone would bother to even steal the god-awful things. But apparently, according to Joan, they were worth a half million bucks. So what Jay does is, rather than try to actually apprehend the criminals, his first thought is to make his own versions of ugly hats as a joke. So, in only seconds, because, you know, he's the Flash, he has managed to throw together headgear that sports various random crap, like a battleship or a building, seriously, like this Empire State Building thing coming out of the top of a hat. Um, There's even one with a working electric fan. He is carrying these hats back to the theater where the show is, and he passes this woman in the street, and she's like, oh, I wish I could own a hat like that. And when he finally gets to the theater, Joan is over the moon at his creations, and the hats are modeled for the fashion show. To such a warm reception, the Flash actually passes out from confusion. He just, like, falls out fucking flat face on the floor. So Joan takes the hat with the fan on it, and she plugs it in, and she uses the fan to blow on the Flash to revive him. The Flash remembers that there was an actual crime committed, so he decides to run all over town to find a clue, but of course, no luck, because the dumb fuck waited so long to find the guy. Oh well. So then we meet the Monocle, who's called the Monocle because he wears, you know, a monocle. And his thugs bring him the jewels from the hats. Now this is what the Monocle does. He does something weird with his stolen jewels. He has a flower garden in his secret lair, 
and he sets a little gem inside the center of each of the flowers. And that's just weird. So the monocle starts ranting about how it takes good brains to be a good crook and how he has more brains than anyone. So he sends his thugs off to rob a bank with knockout gas to clear the way. Jay Garrick goes to that bank the next morning to make a deposit just after the thugs have thrown down the gas. But he's so super fast that he exhaled the gas before it could work its evil work upon him. He throws off his coat and scarf, and he just happens to be wearing his flash shirt as his main shirt that day. And he also, quote, produces his helmet from a paper bag. And ta-da, he's a flash. And he runs out of the bank so fast that his wake sucks the gas out. And the flash clues in that these thugs are using gas. So maybe they're the same guys who use gas and stole the jeweled hats. So he throws each guy up in the air at a flagpole and each guy lands just so that the pole goes up the back of the guy's jacket and he slides down stuck to the pole and it's kind of a good thing the pole didn't try to slide up some other place but anyways while all this is going on the monocles and radio contact with these guys and when he realizes they've been captured he tells the flash over the radio to meet him at his home address and the monocle then looks up the flash in his list of all lawmen that he has in a book. And he sees that the flash has a girlfriend named Joan Williams. This is pretty fucking amazing. And I'm going to talk about it more when I'm done. Um, so he sends thugs over to kidnap Joan with the idea that if the flash beats him, they'll kill the girl. Otherwise, he tells them to let Joan go because he's so, you know, such a perfect gentleman. So they drive to Joan's house, and as they're driving along the road, the Flash unknowingly passes them going the other way towards the monocle, and the suction of his wake, again, pulls the rear license plate off the car. So the Flash gets to the monocle's house, and he gets the call over the intercom into a special room. He walks in, and it's a brightly lit room full of mirrors! And he sees the monocle's face on all the mirrors. He doesn't know which one's the real monocle! He doesn't know who to get! But then, dumb fuck that he is, the monocle can't tell which Flash is real either, because he sees Flash on all the mirrors, so he doesn't know where to shoot. So what does he do? He opens a trap door to escape from the room. His own room that he set up to trap the Flash, he has to get away from. He then goes to another room, and he sets it up with a stroboscope, and he puts two thugs in there with guns. And there's some kind of wonky science that comes in here, because uh, when the Flash enters a stroboscope room, the stroboscope kicks on. I just like saying stroboscope. Uh, anyway, the stroboscope kicks on, and, you know, it's flashing light, so the thugs can see the flash when he's moving at super speed, but, of course, they still can't manage to hit him with their guns. And while this is all going on, the monocle takes all his little jewels from each of the little flowers, which I guess would have to probably take a while. He calls Joan's kidnappers with orders to kill her, because he was just lying earlier when he said that she'd get to live if he won. And the Flash reaches the switch and turns off the stroboscope and goes after the monocle, who is now fleeing in a plane. The Flash is going so fast that he's able to leap, Golden Age Superman style, and catch the plane. He grabs the monocle out of the cockpit and begins swinging him around, like Wonder Woman lasso style, swinging him around over his head until he surrenders because he's scared the Flash is going to throw him to the ground. The Flash takes the jewels and ogles them for a minute before remembering, oh shit, Joan, what'd you do to her? 
So we change scenes back to the thug who is about to kill Joan in their car when a cop pulls them over for missing a rear license plate. And so Joan is saved. And Flash arrives way too fucking late to have been any help. And then the Flash yells at the cop for pulling the people over for such a dumb reason as a missing license plate, because obviously that must just mean they were in an accident at some point. But the thug is all like, no, I'm a careful driver. I've never had an accident. And Flash says, well, what do you think? I did it? And they, of course, they all have a good laugh. And I think that later after the story, Joan probably bitch slaps the Flash for yelling at the cop for saving her life, but we don't get to see that part. So that's the end of the story. Um, you know, it wasn't the best Flash story, but I think it's a pretty decent example of the Flash during this time period. I don't know if y'all have read any of the really early Flash, but it's pretty funny. Gardner Fox liked to be funny in these stories, and it's evident here with the hats at the beginning and the Flash laughing at the monocle's dumb mistakes, not to mention how the Flash totally forgets the point of what he's supposed to be doing a couple of times in the story. There's a scene in another comic where the Flash is running around trying to catch uh, a bad guy, and he's looking around in all these different cars to see which car he's in, and he happens to look in the window of these two kids making out in the back seat, and he's like, ooh, and got it has to keep on going. Anyways, just just fun random crap like that gets thrown in these comics. And I think it's pretty hilarious. Um, the art looks pretty good. E. He Hibbard does a really good job with the Flash. There's another artist who does the character later, especially in the Flash segments of All Star Comics, named Martin Nadel. And I can't fucking stand the way he draws them. It makes the Flash look like a stupid wooden puppet. I just can't stand it. Um, now, the monocle finding Joan Williams in his list of law enforcers is kind of interesting, because supposedly no one but Joan knows that Jay is the Flash, but Joan and Jay are dating. So if Joan and Jay are dating and Joan and the Flash are dating, shouldn't anyone be able to put those two together? But even setting that aside, how would you even go about assembling a list of all law enforcers and who their fucking girlfriends are? And couldn't that change at any moment because people break up and get together with new people all the time? How would that even work? Um, but this version of the monocle was just a guy with a monocle in his eye. There's no laser beam shooting out of it, nothing to mark him as unusual, and we only see him one more time in the Golden Age fighting Hawkman and that other Flash comics I was telling you about. Um, so I guess when they got to that Justice League story and they were trying to find Justice Society villains, they were really just pulling random bad guys out of their ass to put that story together. But um, I do want to recommend, I've read the first uh, 20-ish issues of Flash Comics. Uh, it's all been pretty good. Uh, the plots don't get too wonky. This was one of the wonkier ones. Uh, there's some good humor in there, like the, the scene with the bad guys and the cars making out. And anyways, it was just pretty fucking hilarious, especially since this is 1941. But that's all I have. I just wanted to share. Don't feel like you have to play this on the air. I know it's kind of lengthy. Uh, I just thought it'd be more fun to record it than to just write it all up and have you read it. So keep up the awesome work on your show. I'm looking forward to all the stuff you have planned before All-Star Squadron. And then, of course, I can't wait to actually get to that book and see what Roy Thomas does with the characters. Um, I do want to cast a vote. Recently, I were talking about Wonder Woman and what you should do with all of her stuff on the show. I would suggest stomaching it, reading it, and covering it all in just one episode to get it out of the way. Uh, maybe two if you think this the amount of content deems necessary, but I would suggest just getting it over with and done with and doing it one up. But that's just me. Y'all do whatever you want to. Later!
We also have a uh, email from John uh, regarding episode 32. He says some notes in response to what you said. Number one, Johnny Quick sort of flying. Roy Thomas uh, also was responsible for Quicksilver developing this ability during his late 60s run on the Avengers. I have no idea if Quicksilver kept this power later uh, or still has it now, but Roy Thomas decided that if he could run so fast he could walk on water, then he could run so fast as to uh, propel himself into the air for short distances. I'm guessing that even though the Flashes haven't had this ability, Roy Thomas wanted to give it to his speedster here. Actually, that power was listed on Flash's superpowers card on the back. Huh. I don't yeah. recall ever seeing him, but I'm, I haven't ever read a whole heck of a lot of Flash anyway. But I, I like that it's a distinction used here, you know, to distinguish him from the Flash, you know, just to give him a little bit of a, a, of a leg up over the Flash. Yeah. Uh, he says, number two. Uh, I had a second thing I was going to talk about, but uh, God damn it, I can't remember. He says, screw my Swiss cheese memory anyway. <laughs> so I'll just say that I saw Jennifer's body recently and Amanda Seyfried yeah. slipping some tongue to a female. That's hot. What the hell is he talking about? In the movie Jennifer's Body, Amanda oh, okay. Seyfried <laughs> and uh, Megan Fox share a little lip lock on the, uh, okay. on the screen. So. All right. Says number three, Solomon Grunny, and then in quotations he's got funny. He doesn't look Jewish. Did one of us make that joke? I don't know. I don't remember. He says Solomon was the name of the third king of the Jewish people, according to tradition. The non-anglicized version is actually Shlomo. Hmm. I think. I, uh, never mind. But when I read that. I took it as a reference to the Jewish king. Technically, the king of Israel, because uh, there weren't Jews after uh, Israel's civil or until after Israel's civil war, which followed Solomon's reign. But that's a lecture for another Sunday school class. Okay. Uh, so I have to say, I'm really enjoying this series. This was the level of awesome I had expected when we started All Star. If you remember, I've expressed some disappointment in that series in past emails. And while I did enjoy that run for the most part, these three issues have me jazzed more than I'd expected. Mike, the new intro is beyond awesome. Thank you, sir. To say that you two have been entertaining is like saying the ocean is mere, uh, mildly damp. So, yeah, I'm loving me some ass right now. And your love for ass is infectious. Catch you guys Yeah, don't, don't spread that around. I'm loving me some ass right now. Loving me some ass. Oh, somebody's going to pull that quote out of context. <laughs> and uh, that uh, ass and send it back into the wild. <laughs> Check on it about six months. See how it's doing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have a... We have an e email from Darren D-Man Steves uh, that, that's actually about both Star Trek Monthly Monday over at Two True Freaks, which you can find at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. But he... Uh, you just earned your paycheck for the week. Yes. I get paid. Um, and he has one comment when we did our little reenactment. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen those those Spider-Man strips where somebody went in and like like you know rewrote all the word balloons in them? No. Okay. Ne never mind. I was gonna make a, a a nasty joke about uh 
about one of them, but you won't get it, so never mind. Uh, and while this email has mostly to do with the Star Trek, uh, he does have a comment regarding the reenactment we did several months ago <laughs> of Superman and, and Supergirl talking. Uh, it says, uh, regarding the cousin lovin', the girls at Super Future Friends reviews that Supergirl, Supergirl lovin' over in episode 5, Action Comics number 289, funny, funny, ep, all the way around. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear another very entertaining show talk about it, go over to the Super Future Friends. Yeah, if you're not listening to Super Future Friends, you suck, because that's an awesome show that you really ought to be listening to. The, those gals, they knock it out of the park every episode. They they keep me in stitches, I swear. That show is hilarious. Uh, I'll just skip right over to the next one from Michael Peacock that says, All new, all exciting listener. It says, Dear Scott and Mike, I'm trying my damnedest to remember how I chanced upon the Two True Freaks website, which is sad since it only happened just last week, but am I ever glad it did. Uh, I've been looking for a good while for a fun comics-based podcast to get back into. Now, there's many shows I've yet to dip my toes into on the site. I've already sampled some back to the bins. But the show that got me the most excited, and I'm making sure not only to follow regularly and catch up on the back episodes of, is Tales of the JSA. Woohoo! I admit I am more of a recent collector was around for a few years before Crisis on Infinite Earths initially did away with the whole Earth 2 concept, but I didn't really start collecting until uh, much into my teens. And shamefully, or maybe not so, admit a bulk of my time collecting was spent with Image Comics. Hey, being a budding teenager in the 90s basically forced you to become a drinker of the extreme (laughs) Kool-Aid. He's right, I managed to avoid it somehow. It's like when all your friends join the cult and you're like, what's going on? But as the years went on, and I've had various on-and-off collecting runs, I've grown to side more with DC, even to this day, in a group that surprised me with how they've grown on me in the past ten or so years was the JSA. Maybe it's because of the the historical setting of the group, maybe it's because I enjoy the nobler nature of the team's heroes, or maybe it could be sorely Power Girls um, assets. But ever since I took a chance on the recent relaunch, I've been digging a lot of in the JSA continuity. Now, before you scoff at how a newbie like me has no real say in the classic stories, I was reading more about the recent adventures of the JSA that got me curious about checking out their older adventures and enjoying the hell out of them. I don't think we've ever really called someone out for being a new reader, and it's just like, ah, you, you don't know, you don't know the JSA. You can't talk the J- no, no, no. Everybody's welcome. Except you, and you know who you are. Stop looking at me like that. As for the show's comments on the current state of comics, well, I admit I am guilty of supporting it, but again, collecting comics in my prime was sort of the beginning of the big company nuttiness that drives you crazy. So maybe I just be... I'm just benumbed and conditioned to the ebb and flow of the massive arc to massive arc, but I can also appreciate the storytelling of the 70s and 80s books, back when they could tell a larger story but not have to bilk you for multi-title crossovers. I recall also your talks of the JSA run in Adventure Comics, and that made me a bit nostalgic for a good-sized anthology title. I rather miss the days when companies could just come up with a thickish book featuring stars not normally featured in a full-sized title probably feel a bit less cheated with my hard-earned dollars. I'll conclude this amazing ramble with a few more minor notes. Again, Scott and Mike, thank you for putting out some of my new favorite shows. Batman vs. Jesus needs to be made. 
And for those that grumble <laughs> whenever they think Jeff Johns with the JSA, look at it this way. At least it's not Bill Willingham. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> Michael Peacock. Great email. I like that one. And, you know, he, he makes a... He brings us to a point. I was going to talk about this in the uh, in the back to the bins that we we just recorded, but we were running a little long. But uh, you know, it's funny. Both you and I did somehow manage to skirt all that thing in the '90s with you know the the non Marvel and DC titles for the most part. And I wonder if that's why we don't have the standard, you know, negative opinion of that era because the stuff that we were reading didn't largely descend into, you know, what the 90s is kind of, you know, regarded for, you know, down upon for because yeah. we were we were keeping with the stuff that was for the most part pretty good, you know, the the Superman books and that sort of thing. Do you think that's why we don't have probably the, I, yeah. I mean, but but also a lot of my not so much nostalgia for the for the 90s uh comes from the fact that i'm looking back on it now and having more of a perspective because you know in some of the cases those books are 20 years old right and there's more of a of a perspective where you know back in 2005 i couldn't have that that sort of perspective of what was going on in the late 90s because it was still so recent. I mean it's gotten to the point and I don't know if you have the same I don't know if I want to call it a problem but basically when you get to a certain age you know five years ago does not seem like all that time ago. Like when, when you really think about it, six years ago around this time they were just gearing up for Infinite Crisis. And that seems to have just freaking happened. You know? It's just, it's so fresh in my mind. So, <laughs> um, so I don't think you can have, you know, I, I could have had the perspective on the 90s that, that I had before, but now looking back on it, especially the latter half of that decade, there was a lot that the companies were trying to do because they were scrambling for survival, basically. Right. So... You know, and, and and you know what? A lot of it is crap. I will completely and utterly agree with that. You know, there were you know you know the the joke was big tits, big guns. You know, armor everywhere. You know, even Superman had a you know steel had the armor that shot you know red hot rivets or whatever came out of his guns. But the, the fact of the matter is, is because I mainly stuck to DC at that time, which is I'm what I'm most nostalgic for is I think you're right because I stuck to that I didn't get burned out on what was going over on over at Marvel and Image right which were the ones that were doing the the gratuitous big guns big tits thin waists no story type of comics I mean I tried to read like in chronological order like young blood and and, and brigade and all that and I got to about five issues, six issues into Young Blood, and about two issues, four issues into Brigade before I threw it on the ground and said, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> so, a lot of crap in there. But I, I think I got paid to take it. I don't think I paid much for those books. <laughs> we have a uh, follow-up by uh, Michael Peacock. Did you want to read that one real quick? 
Uh, sure. It says, Dear Scott and Mike, I figured I'd send out one correction to a statement I made last night and drop an amusing aside I forgot to mention. The correction being I meant to make a jab at Bill Willingham's rather horrid run on JSA of late. Oh, yeah, that's pretty much what I got from it. Mm-hmm. The aside being, thanks to your continual Hostess ad dramatic readings, I've caught myself while buying gas for my car buying a pack of Hostess Twinkies. Sad to say, Aquaman did not show up to pass on his approval or beg for the second win- Twinkie in the pack. Thanks again <laughs> for the show and take it easy. Damn it, I think Hostess owes us a kickback. Uh, well, they should at least, like, you know, we've been talking about DC Comics. Hostess had all, Hostess had all those DC Comic character boxes. Oh yeah. Though I think I think anything the Green Lantern one was like green glowing balls. I'm like no, <laughs> God no. I did buy a pack of Twinkies that had Superman on it though. They're awesome. I was, getting, I was getting annoyed because I saw the Green Lantern, I saw the Flash, and I saw Batman on the cupcakes, and I'm like, where's Superman? This always happens every time they roll out something like this. You know, Batman's there, and Green Lantern's the flavor of the month, and there's the Flash. Oh, here's the Superman Twinkies. <laughs> Did it talk you off the windowsill? <laughs> That was actually what I was thinking before I found the Superman one. I was getting, like, really worked up and preparing my my angry Facebook post. (laughs) We got time for one more? Yeah, let's do one more. All right, we've got one here. It says, just found you catching up quick. It says, guys, I'm about a dozen episodes behind, but have thoroughly enjoyed the ones I've gotten through so far. I listen to a few other uh, comic book podcasts, but none are currently reviewing books from the 70s. They either are in the early 90s, such as From Crisis to Crisis. They suck. Yeah, that show stinks. Or the early Silver Age. And as much as I appreciate comics from the 60s and 90s, I started reading in the 70s. Good man. The JSA were not the first books I read, but the first books that I have clear memories of were the JLA-JSA crossovers of the late 70s, and I'm looking forward to you guys getting to those stories. I need to, di- uh, I need to dig, but I think I have the complete run of all Star Squadron, and I'm looking forward to uh, having a reason to read them again. Enjoying the show? Keep up the good work. Professor Allen in Ohio. Thank you very much, Professor Allen. I'd yeah. like to know what you're a professor of, actually. The, um... The, <laughs> he makes a comment, though, about how he's going to dig out All-Star Squadron and read it along with us. With the plethora of podcasts that go along this same vein where, you know, ASM Classics is going over the early uh, Spider-Man comics, uh, you, guy, you and Chris are going over the Star Wars and Star Trek comics. We're going over All-Star Squadron. Jeff and I are going over Superman and such. And, and I know there are other shows that do something similar. Do, do you think people just get burned out on having to keep up with all the reading they want to do? I don't know. I wonder shows? about that. I wonder. I wonder how many people are reading along. Because I'll be honest with you, most of the shows that I'm reading, that I'm listening to that are you know exactly that format i don't really read along you know i, I kind of just go along with the the synopses as they're given or whatever because like in the case of fctc i've read all that stuff so i find a lot of it comes back to me as you guys synopsize and then with the spider-man stuff i'm familiar enough with the characters and all that even if i di- haven't read that specific issue i can still follow along but 
But I, I am continually surprised by how many of our listeners, you know, to our various shows do tell us that, you know, I, I started collecting this or buying that or I dug out my back issues or whatever and I'm reading along with you. That That's actually pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I don't know, I really just don't have the time is the big thing for me. I'd love to be reading along with, uh, especially like, say, like uh, Amazing Spider-Man Classics just because they're... You know, as I really got to thinking about it, the era that they're about to pass into here shortly, you know, the post-Ditco stuff, man, there's a long stretch of issues between where Ditko left and where I'm familiar with. I mean, we're talking like 100 issues or better that I really don't know anything about. So, yeah, I, I would kind of like to read along with that stuff just to, to learn more about it, you know, but... Like you say, who's got the time? (laughs) What I think is exciting is that, you know, as podcasting continues and, you know, uh, know, a million new podcasts pop up every day, you know, that it's going to get to a a saturation point where there I don't think there's going to be a series out there that somebody's not going to talk about in one regard (laughs) or the other. I I actually think that's kind of cool, you know, so long as they're good. I mean, there's also there's a lot of, you know, podcasts that unfortunately will cover you know, a, a good run or a US good character or whatever, and, and they're, you know, Team they stink. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's the books that stink, but I'm talking, you know, there's also oh, okay. you know, the podcast that, you know, and I'm not going to name names, but, you know, there's there's been a few that have popped up that are like, oh, wow, you know, somebody finally decided to do a such and such, you know, podcast, you know, on, on this character or team or whatever, and then you listen to it and you're like, wow, yeah, that's really not very good. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the Sleepwalker podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and I think the same guy that does that should do a Darkhawk um, podcast because <laughs> we want to cover all of the kind of pseudo crappy Marvel series from the early 90s. When it gets, you know, there's all that talk all the time, you know, you especially hear like longtime podcasters saying, you know, there's too many podcasts, too many podcasts. I really have never agreed that there's no. too many. However, when we get to the point where there's a Ravage 2099 podcast, <laughs> it, we might have reached that point where there's too many at that point. No, I, I completely disagree. I was th- I was actually thinking about that the other day because I was I was reco- I, for some reason I was at work and I remembered somebody emailing you and saying, you know, you know, you, you really shouldn't do this because you know it's a, it's it's a small pond and too many fish and all that. And basically, what that says to me is, I'm worried that people won't listen to me anymore, right. so I don't want you to do your podcast. Right. To which I say, fuck you and everyone that looks like you. So, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, this is fandom. This is what fandom does. Ever since fandom organized in the '60s, when you started out with the fanzines, and then you went through the, you know, the appas, and then when the internet started, you had like little sites and then message boards. You know, podcasting is the natural extension of all of that. And you know, there are going to be shows that aren't as good, uh, whether the hosts don't have the the proper speaking skills. And I'm not going to say talent, because talent's relative. People probably think we're hacks. But, you know, that, that, that just can't, you know, that just can't, that just ramble on and on and on like I'm doing right now. Uh, or the, technically they just don't have the equipment that it sounds as good as others. But I will never tell anybody, don't do your podcast. Right. You know, if you got the passion and you've got the time and you've got, 
you know, Audacity on your computer and you've got 10 bucks a month to spend on a Libsyn account, go for it. You know, it's all you. You know, you know, you know, make up the blog, whatever. And it's been really, it's really interesting to, to, to see the, the, the evolution and living through the evolution of comic fandom on the internet, too. So, but that's a subject for another time. Um, none, unfortunately, uh, All Star Squadron number 12 has not been reprinted. Oh. That sucks. It's because everyone should read this story. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Long Box, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailey2.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. We will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory.